Now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I love Claire McCaskill, the senator from Missouri and a really good friend of mine, because she is the quintessential combination of uh, idealist and hard-nosed pragmatist. All that was reflected in the book she published uh, this year called Plenty Ladylike, in which she talked about her own journey in politics from a pioneering young uh, uh, woman legislator in Missouri to her days in the Senate. If you want a little taste of what Claire and that book is like, take a listen to this. So my buddy, Claire McCaskill, and the reason you're my buddy isn't just that you were one of the early and fierce supporters of Barack Obama, but you're just a, a damn good pal. You're someone who is a great politician and unapologetic about it. Um, and you kind of came by that naturally, didn't you? Yeah. I, you know, I was raised in a family that, um, you know, my mom and dad made me say trick or treat and vote for JFK when I was seven years old. <laughs> Um, and that occurred in a, a small town that was um, not enthusiastic about John F. Kennedy. And my parents were, it was notable to, notable to me at the age of seven that they were very involved in this campaign and that they were unpopular in my hometown because of it. That was Did this cost the, you treats when well, this happened? Well, it probably cost me some treats, <laughs> although we were probably so adorable they couldn't help but <laughs> throw us some candy. But it was not the first time and not the last time that my parents um, uh, kind of put in the hard drive that working on behalf of candidates you care about is uh, a patriotic thing to do. I was never told that politicians were lazy, no good crooks. I was never, um, you know, kind of poisoned that way. I think that's Do you think cynicism- that was because of the, your environment or was it because it was a different time? Well, both. Obviously, I don't think um, the cynicism was at the level it is now, but I think also it was because um, my mom and dad um, were old-fashioned patriots and thought that helping political candidates was their duty. They not only helped them; they were, they were involved in politics, right? A little bit. I mean, I you know I think it you know some people that are here in Washington they have quite a pedigree when it comes to politics. I mean, my dad was a committeeman, um, and my mom. Was See, in the, Chicago, that's like the highest. Office. Yeah, well, not not in Missouri, <laughs> not in not in rural Missouri yeah. particularly. My mom ran for the city council. Um, and was elected the first woman on the city council in Columbia. Um, but they were, um, we would go to various political events, but um, I think we, we, they, we say now that my mom and dad were never the type that got in the clutch, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were never in the back meeting the hoity-toity, or um, they were just good old salt and salt of the earth. We believe in this candidate. We're going to try to stuff envelopes and. When your mom ran, did you do stuff for her? When she, I didn't really. I was embarrassed by her more than anything. Um, she was. Uh, my mom was really a character. Uh, I met your mom. She was. A, yeah, she was you a, did. Yeah. So you know. I do. She'd never met a stranger. Yeah. Um, was not afraid to get in anybody's face. And if you're, you know, if you're a sophomore in high school, that's just an embarrassing mother to have. So I kind of avoided her during that period of time because uh, she was doing things when she got elected to the council. She did things all the time because we lived in Columbia, Missouri then in the School of Journalism. There's like four journalists for every member of the city council. <laughs> and so she got a lot of coverage. Uh, in, what kinds of things did she do? Well, uh, one time she left a closed meeting and went out in the hallway and announced all the journalists there. Uh, they're talking about things in there they shouldn't be talking about. <laughs> I wanted to come out and tell you everything they're saying because this meeting should be open and you should be in there. At one point, the good old boys enraged her so much, she left the dais in the city council, went on the back row of the spectator section of the council chambers, and heckled them. 
the whole meeting. <laughs> so that gives you some idea of the kind of press. She must have been popular got. with the reporters, though. Uh, she, the reporters loved her. I'm not sure her, she made a lot of headway How long with her did, was she served? Did she? Just a couple of years, because then my dad got a, a job, a different job, and they had to move. So I see. Uh, she she was only on the council for a few years. I see. And uh, I read somewhere that now, did you know even then that you might. Politics might be something you'd gravitate to. Yeah, I, you know, my teacher started telling me at a fairly young age that I was much better at the, the subject matter where I didn't have to give a right or wrong answer. If there was something to argue about, I um, did pretty well. Yes, future and senator. He, so um, my teacher started telling me from a young age that I should do things like that. And, of course, my mom and dad. I mean, I think my mother started telling me I'd be the first woman governor when I was 12 or 13. And uh, they were really um, supportive of me getting involved. So I started working on campaigns when I was in high school and continued and pretty much made up my mind in high school that I would run for office and began kind of tailoring what I did. For example, I didn't go to law school out of state because I calculated in my mind that I could raise more money from my colleagues in law school if I stayed in Missouri when I was ready to run statewide in Missouri, whereas if I went off to Georgetown or Emory or somewhere, uh, I wouldn't have that base of fundraising support from my law school classmates. That early, huh? Yeah, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? No, but it's good of you to admit it. Yeah, I, yeah well, you know, I think that's one of the things that's, that gets people kind of disgusted with people who run for office is that you know, it's pretty obvious when people are being coy about their ambition, and ambition is a good thing. Right. I mean, ambition just means you're determined to find an opportunity that that you think you can excel at. And so I've always been pretty upfront about my ambition. And I wish more women, more women would be. I think a lot of women think it's, uh, uh, you know, not ladylike. Yes. And you're plenty ladylike. And you I'm know plenty that. ladylike. Yes. Right. Exactly. We um, uh, I wanted to read a quote that from you uh, from an interview that really interested me about this whole uh, notion of what draws one to politics. And you said, I mean, most of us that run for office are attention junkies, some worse than others, but I think most people who run for office want to be liked and want to be admired and want to get positive attention. Why else? I mean, you do want to change things and you want to impact policy, but you're also putting yourself out there for acceptance or rejection, and that's a painful process uh, to go through unless the intention you get is po- is on the positive side. Uh, on a positive side, it doesn't overwhelm uh overcome all the negative stuff you have to put up with. I've thought about this a lot uh, because you have a lot of folks out there who I think fit this description and for whom winning elections is very important in terms of the approbation that they get. And if it becomes that important to you, isn't it difficult to do unpopular things? I mean, if you have to make a choice between—I'll tell you a story. We left—you were at this caucus. I left the Democratic caucus with President Obama when he was talking about the health reform, and he got in the car and he said, "What are they all so scared of?" And I said, "Well, I think they may be scared of losing their jobs." And he said, "Well, what's the point of being up here for thirty years if you never do anything?" And I said, "You know, you." you, you I think you're misreading this. These folks, for a lot of them, this is the best job they're ever going to have. And I think if they have a choice between being up here for 30 years, they'd like to do good things. But if it's a choice, I think a lot of them would take the 30 years. So if if the approbation is really so important to you, isn't there a lot of incentive for people just not to do what they think is the right thing because they're afraid it, it might not be the popular thing? Well, that's kind of the nub of it. I mean, that you, you've boiled down the essence of public service in this country is how do you balance um, popularity with courage? And sometimes the unpopular thing to do is the right thing to do. And I would say to my friend, the president, if he were here, easy for you to say Mm -hmm. as president of the United States. Um, I think that is, um, you know, he is my friend and I am loyal to him, but one of the president's shortcomings is that sometimes he sees the world through his eyes and doesn't do, I think, enough work on being empathetic about how other people view things. And it, I, I had the same conversation with him. I called him and I said, listen, you know this could cost you reelect." And he said, well, it's worth it to me on health care. Right. And I said, okay, good for you. I'm <laughs> there. 
So I think... Um, That's actually... I thoroughly understand what you're saying. And I said to him then, I said, you know, I was trying to explain to him yeah. that because that's like 80% of the people in Washington. I mean, there are people up here who, who, you know, are willing to blow themselves up for various things that they feel deeply about. But, you know, for a lot of folks up here, this is the best job they're ever going to have. And, and they do want to keep it and they do want that approbation. So, you know, it's, you're asking a lot. I and, think I've got a blessing, really, though. David, because I'm from a state where no matter how I vote, I make about half the people mad. Yeah, you're in a very you're in a real divided state. Missouri. And so I think when you're from that kind of state, it gives you more elbow room because you're never going to make everybody happy. I, the people I see that are the biggest chickens about doing the right thing, invariably they're from bright red or bright blue states. Right, and they're more worried about primaries. Yeah, well, I want to ask you then about they that. Are you, you are only one of the few surviving Democrats in red states. I mean, what are there? How many of there are you? Four or five? Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp and Donnelly Tester, and Donnelly. Tester. Five. Yeah. Uh, you, you lost six of them or something last. Yeah, yeah we lost Kay Hagan. We lost. Uh, Mary, we, Mary. Yeah, Mary Landrieu. We lost. Um, my friend in Alaska, we lost a bunch of moderates last yeah. time. So what does that do to the Senate? And what does it say about our politics? And, well, and what does I, it say I, about you, my friend? How long are you going to be around? I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I'm a little apoplectic about the lack of um, the atrophy of the middle and the lack of, of support, political support for the middle. I've said to the business community in this country, a lot of business leaders, you know, you're making a big mistake betting red shirt or blue shirt. Um, you should be looking at thoughtful moderates that are willing to um, try to find the sweet spot, try to find that middle ground. But, you know, my phone rings off the hook in my office, and nobody calls and says, you know, I'm calling to ask Senator McCaskill to compromise. We get no letters saying, well, you know, can you compromise and just get something done? Now, you know, that's because all the noise, be it through cable news or the engagement of the base of our parties, the noise in the system is generated at the far ends. The people in the middle are too busy trying to figure out if they can afford to pick up their dry cleaning before their next paycheck. They're not watching Rachel Maddow. They're not watching Sean Hannity. They're watching Dancing with the Stars if they're not exhausted after helping their child with their homework and figuring out if they filled out all the forms they need to fill out for camp next summer. Or can they even afford the camp? And so those folks want us to compromise. But they're busy. They're not engaged politically. They and vote. They, and they don't vote in primaries. They don't vote in primaries, but they vote in generals. And they're the ones who elect me in Missouri. So I, am, I try to stay finely tuned to those folks who aren't picking up the phone and writing me. But I'm not sure that Washington can hear their voices very loudly anymore. And that's a real problem. Because that's when you see this. I mean, that's when a guy like Trump gets traction because all these people are so angry, they just think, well, to hell with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The cynicism becomes palpable because everybody, well, they can't get anything done anyway. Well, we could if people were willing to be realistic. Um, you know, I, I love the, the Tea Partiers who come up and shake the Constitution in my face. I, I like to gently remind them, have you read the part about the possibility of a divided government where you have a president of one party and a Congress of the other party. You know, our founding fathers did that on purpose. Most countries don't have that, as you well know. Most developed nations, whoever wins the parliamentary elections, controls the executive branch. Right. Not in America. So it's not set up that way. So when you say that, that I'm sure that they say, wow, that's, that's really interesting. i got to go back and think about this. No, they do not. <laughs> but... They, and that's why I, I want to send the Freedom Caucus in the House a math textbook. You know, do two-thirds. Do the math. If you've got a Democratic president, we're not going to shut down the government over defunding Planned Parenthood. But as you point out before, the political dangers and rewards are misaligned because they're not worried about the people in the middle. They're worried about getting challenged in a primary. Right. And so they're doing a different kind of math. When it's, they're making very rational decisions based on their personal politics and this notion of survival, that the most important thing is survival. Right. How many of your colleagues who you talk to on both sides uh, acknowledge that they're casting votes that they aren't particularly comfortable with, but they feel they have to cast them? 
Well, you know, I, I none of us are completely pure, so I'm not going to be no, sanctimonious I'm, I'm not, here. I'm, I'm not, sure I'm, there are I'm times I've suggest- I've cast votes that I'm not proud of, but I'd say that probably 20% of the Senate are capable of casting um, votes that are scary for their political future. I don't know about the House. The House is weird. If I could wave a magic wand, I would... Um, just with a magic wand, I would make half the House seats swing seats. And then you'd see a whole different... They, they used, there used to be quite a few of yeah. them in the not-so-distant past. No, and that's where we really got caught sleeping. I think the Democratic Party um, kind of quit paying attention to the state legislatures. Listen, I am so with you. I think this—and I was there, okay, so I take some responsibility for this. Well, good. I'm glad I know who to blame. The you. Republican <laughs> Party. But I can give you a few other names. The Republican Party— has done a much better job in cultivating state legislative candidates, supporting them. The Koch brothers have invested tens of millions of dollars in electing legislatures around the country. Not only have they controlled the redistricting of districts uh, and state legislatures, uh, but they're also creating a bench of potential candidates for statewide office later I don't see that structure in the Democratic Party. No. Well, in its, in its resources. Um, you know, the Koch brothers provided something that's pretty important in that regard, and that, that was resources. You know, if you're going to raise money, um, the donors in the Democratic Party, you know, it's very hard. I've, I, I tried, I'm still trying to work in Missouri to recruit legislative candidates to make sure we have a bench for statewide office. But talking to donors... You know, they want to give to a gubernatorial candidate. They want to give to a U.S. Senate candidate or a congressional candidate or a presidential candidate. When I go to a donor, I say, well, you know, I've got this really nice um, athletic coach down in southwest Missouri who I think would be a good candidate. They kind of look at me and go, what? You know, really? And um, yeah, it's think, harder. Well, you know what? I think uh, Democrats tend to be top-down. It's the nature of their philosophy. Washington is the most important Place and therefore it's the Senate races, the congressional races, presidential races, and um, th- this this is going to doom the party in some ways, at least in the short term, uh, because of uh, the ramifications of redistricting. And um, so, um, on, on the on, I want to get back to um, your own career for a second. You wrote this wonderful book called Plenty Ladylike. And you were really kind of a pioneer in your state uh, as a woman uh, running for public office. You, you, what was it like when you were 28 years old and running for uh, the state legislature back in the early 80s? It was, um, it was different. Um, I was young. I was single. I was everything. In fact, I remember being in the Missouri legislature as a freshman and someone getting up giving a speech about their family and their home and, 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 and their work and that that is the American dream. And I'm going, whoops, <laughs> I haven't done any of that. I rent, I don't own, I don't even have a pet for, for a pamphlet or a picture. Um, so it was much different. Did very you get sexist. rebuttal time? Did- yeah, yeah. It was very sexist, incredibly sexist. Um, I'm, I talk about that in the book. Uh, the first time I went up on the dais, I was nervous, and I went up to ask the Speaker of the House uh, if he had any advice or help he could give me getting my first bill out of committee. And he turned to me with a sardonic smile and said, well, did you bring your knee pads? Now, and he, he wasn't inviting you to play on the baseball no, team, No, he I was guess. not. Yes. And he, you know, he thought it was funny. I pretended that I thought it was funny because I really didn't know what else to do under those circumstances. Um, and I you've laughed been pretty and cr- walked You've been, away. You've been in retrospect somewhat regretful. Yeah, a little. I don't think I was... Uh, I, it was hard because I, I was so focused on being effective. And so I used every slight, and every time I was marginalized, I used it to kind of fuel my fire to say, I can be better than these guys. I'm smarter than these guys. I can go farther than these guys. It just made kind of put my ambition on steroids every time I was treated that way. But I wasn't confrontational. And I'm really proud of young women today who have the confidence uh, to, in fact, why this book was going to print, two young interns in Jefferson City confronted their bosses with sexual harassment, and both the Speaker of the House and a state senator lost their career. Um, And I told both of those young women how proud I was of them and that I didn't have that courage when I was in their shoes. 
Yeah, and in terms of what you see in your own legislature and and in the in the U.S. Senate, um, how different is it today? I mean, what what vestiges of sexism do you run across still? I really don't in the U.S. Senate. You know, I um, it is a f- much different than when I went to the Missouri legislature when I arrived in the United States Senate. First, the men in the United States Senate have figured out that if you're a woman and you get here on your own right, you're a pretty tough cookie because it's hard. And I defeated an incumbent to get here, and he was a well-respected incumbent in the Senate. So I came in with credibility that, you know, this is somebody who can handle herself. And, you know... People who come here are, are, are very steeped in policy and smart, and I think that um, I've never had a whiff of sexism from my Senate colleagues, and uh, that's a much different than what I encountered. And in, in some of that might be age, because I wasn't single and in my 20s, mm-hmm. and I came to the Senate as obviously a much older married woman, but um, I think a lot of it is that the men in the Senate have figured out that uh, it would be a big mistake to marginalize any of us. No one publicly uh, refers to you as a whore, as they did. No, they do back not. Then, no, there was the this, uh, the c word has not been used, which it was used uh, by a legislative colleague of mine in a drunken state one night, and uh, so it it you know I I will say this it toughened me up, and you've got to have thick skin because if you take. Uh, the slights personally that you come your way in a political arena, you might as well decide immediately that that's this is not the career for you because it's this is it's it's personally painful sometimes. You got to get over it. Another um, kind of male preserve that you um, uh, that you assailed, assaulted, or whatever you want to call it, and ultimately defeated. You ran for prosecutor in your in your county. Um, how how what kinds of obstacles and difficulties did you difficulties did you uh, confront there? Well, this was Kansas City, and and, and I, w- I had been an assistant prosecutor, so I'd done a lot of felony trials. So, and I was really honored that when I left the prosecutor's office and went to the legislature and was practicing law part time, the Fraternal Order of Police hired me to be their lawyer. And which so was, you had a good relationship with the police. I had a good relationship with the police, and I got their endorsement. That meant the world mm-hmm. because I was the first woman running for the elected DA of Kansas City, and to have the police on my side sent the signal that you know, hey, the police says she's okay sure. and she's tough enough. Absolutely. So it was a, a very big deal, and um, and I, you know, listen, that was a that's a it was a job I loved. Uh, I learned an incredible amount in that job in terms of communicating with your bosses, which is the public, uh, and, and dealing with a variety of egos, including judges and police departments, and worst of all, the federal government and their law enforcement arms that are sometimes very heavy on ego. Um, and how do you ma- manage all that? I learned a lot from that, and it really helped me, I think, later in my career. Let me ask you about just from that experience, you're watching what's going on now. In my own city of Chicago, there's uh, a great deal of uh, turmoil right now uh, because generations-long problems between police and community have now surfaced in in the age of videotape uh, now. We're in a different era, and a young man was shot. The police officer was indicted for first degree murder and it clearly and there was a uh, you know what appeared to be a cover-up on the part of some of his colleague police who were on the street at the time um although i i don't i don't no charges have been placed there i should say that yet justice department's looking at it how do you strike that balance between um, the need for aggressive law enforcement, particularly in crime-ravaged communities, which are often poor, often minority, and respecting people's rights, protecting uh, people from the kind of incident that Chicago just saw. Well, first let me say that the vast majority of police officers out there I agree. are doing well, incredibly dangerous work. I was a police and, reporter, and I've seen and, both sides yeah, of this equation. And, and it's like any other occupation. There are people who are doing this work who jump to conclusions and jump to force 
too quickly. Uh, that's not the majority. Right. But they're there. Right. And I will say that what our system has done over the years is it's protected those people because they were never called out. They were never really held accountable. Now with video, it, and, you know, body cameras are going to help. But frankly, everybody has video camera now. Right. And they're going to be video, whether it's a dash cam on a police car or whether or a it's a body camera on a police a officer or phone a nearby spectator. And that's why I say body camera is important because a spectator could get the end of a confrontation and not get how it began. Right. And you wouldn't get the context. So I am protective of police officers in that they have to risk their lives every day and make split second judgments. On the other hand, if the facts are there to indict for first degree murder, being cognizant of what is necessary for first degree murder, there is no excuse for a year going by. None. Right. I cannot um, fathom a reasonable excuse for right. why this would only come to light when the video was forced into the public eye. And not only should the police chief be held accountable, uh, if, if the DA didn't look at that film, they're incompetent. If they did look at that film and waited a year, Well, I don't think there's any problem. dispute uh, about the fact that they, the prosecutors looked at the film and they said they were waiting for the federal government to act. But I don't under, entirely understand that because the federal government was pursuing a civil rights action, which is a much harder and longer... First of all, the course. federal government doesn't even have jurisdiction right. on oh, a murder. murder, yes. I mean, that's what most people in this country don't understand. I mean, FBI doesn't answer 911 calls. Yeah. Um, they don't do rape and robbery and murder. Like, they do bank robberies sometimes. Right. And, and, you know, sometimes they try to figure out a way to take a case away from the local government when they want it. But, um, you know, this, this was a if, – if, in fact, this was unjustified use of force that resulted in murder one charges from the state of Illinois, um, I can't imagine waiting a year for the federal government on a civil rights No, I, I agree with this. But um, your larger point is important. You know, in the city of Chicago, 80 percent of the police officers have four or fewer complaints against them over the course of a career. And then there's this 10% at the top of the, that are habitual offenders. And this guy who shot this kid was one of them. Uh, and yet he was out on the street. And there, there you know, almost every uh, com- uh, complaints are largely dismissed. I mean, there just hasn't been a very rigorous uh, process. And it seems to me that those 80% are besmirched by the the handful of people who abuse their authority, it makes it harder for them to do their job. Yeah, I think this is a real gut check moment for the policing community in this country. And and it's not so much that for the vast majority of them that they would do things differently, but sometimes it's how you do it. Um, if you look in Ferguson, um, even though the federal investigation showed that uh, there was no uh, unjustified use of force by the officer in that case, um, not just did this local grand jury find that, but so did the federal government. Mm -hmm. Both of them concluded the physical evidence was clear that Michael Brown was coming on, was coming at the officer and the officer was reasonable. Unlike the uh, situation in Chicago where the young man was walking away. Correct. Correct. So, um, but the police investigation about the pattern and practices, um, they found that there was, you know, there were not enough, attempts made to really integrate the police officers into the community. And I think that if there is a silver bullet here, it would be getting back to community policing model. Mm -hmm. Um, We did that when I was the DA in Kansas City. We even had community prosecutors. So prosecutors were assigned by neighborhoods. So when there was a problem in the neighborhood, the people who needed the protection of the police and the criminal justice system, they knew the police officers and they knew the prosecutor, and they've there was a level of trust there. Yeah. With budget cuts, we've gotten into this. We only respond to calls, yeah. and then it's just we don't trust any of you, and we've got to build that trust back. I well, think it's the other really thing is, important. you know, um, McCarthy, the police superintendent, was fired in Chicago. He was fond of fond isn't the right word, but he, when there were uh, murders in the community, gang murders, he would lecture the community on the fact that, you know, th- this code of silence can't stand. But it seems to me that if you have a code of silence for police uh, around their 
misconduct. It's very hard to tell the community, you know, we're going to keep our code, but you shouldn't keep yours. And rather than lecture the community on a code of silence, figure out why the code of silence exists and it's trust. Yeah. It's trust. Um, I, I, I want to move on. You're on the Armed Services Committee. You're on the Homeland Security. So you're right in the middle of everything that's going on right now relative to national security. Uh, and I want to ask you about that. I didn't, I, I'd be, I'd kick myself if I, I meant to mention this at the beginning of the discussion. You said it's hard to cast difficult votes. Um, back in uh, 2010, there was a vote on the DREAM Act, mm-hmm. um, and um, it, you, it, it lost because it didn't get the 60 votes that were necessary, the DREAM Act, to allow the kids of, uh, of undocumented workers uh, um, to continue and to be in school. And, to, and um, you cast that vote knowing that it wasn't going to pass. Right. You cast it uh, knowing that it was going to probably be used against you. I know you talked to the president about it. Um, what was, I'm just interested in, in why, I, I mean, I, I, I love you for me, it. I'm glad you did. He called me in the kitchen. I remember where I was. I was in my kitchen that morning before, before, uh, the day of the vote, the president called and, uh, I can say this now. He said, don't tell anybody, but if, if, you know, if you don't have to, it, you know, if it's the difference, it, it would be great if you would. And I said, well, I don't know how I'm going to vote. I, I, he, I drive him crazy because I always say that to him. I don't know how I'm going to vote. And, and, um, but my daughter, my oldest daughter, um, she had told me the week before I'd been bugging them about what they wanted for Christmas. And she told me all she wanted was for me to vote for the DREAM Act. Well, you know, when your kids, I get teared up thinking about it. When your kids do that to you, it's one of those moments that you look in the mirror and you really do, why am I here? And all those dreamers were in the gallery. And it just was one of those times where I thought, you know, what the hell? If, if I can't vote this, these kids, you know, if I believe in the New Testament and I believe in my faith that we do not hold the sins of the fathers against the children. And these kids had no choice when they came to this country. They didn't, you know, they weren't, their parents didn't check in with them and say, hey, you're two years old. Do you want to go to America illegally? Uh, this is the only country they've ever known. They and love this and country. And it's really not the case that uh, most, that, that, they came here. Their parents came here thinking, "Well, we can quickly have a child." And no, that's the facts. Don't the right. data doesn't yes. support that? It's a popular rhetoric on the right, but the truth is that the people who come to this country um, from Mexico uh, uh, and from from the southern border, uh, the vast majority are coming to feed their families. They're not coming for a vacation. They were coming because they could get jobs, and they brought their children. And those children have never known any other country. So I just couldn't. It was one of those. If I hadn't voted that way, I would have really felt yucky. Um, so it, it. And I've you know, there's been a, a lot of votes like that. Um, I, and I'm not the most popular politician in Missouri. But that's okay. You don't have to win by more than one. Um, you know, you don't have to have everybody like you. That yeah. was something I had to get comfortable with. There's people who loathe me in my state. I mean, there's a huge swath of people that loathe me. That's okay. Um, I, that's okay. I can I can handle that. I just need – I can keep doing my work as long as the majority think I'm doing okay. And if I can explain my vote, I usually can get that majority. Well, I wrote a book called Believer, so you know that I – admire you for for <laughs> casting a vote like that i mean i think that's really as you say yes what are you here for you know that's and true. That's, um uh so let me ask you about the um uh, about where we are right now um as we speak the president has just given a uh, a national address um more to sort of um catalog what has been done um, it wasn't a, a new policy. Um, and it's obviously become a huge thing, particularly on the Republican side, the aforementioned Donald Trump um, leading the way in terms of uh, bombastic rhetoric. But um, but it, obviously Americans are concerned, and uh, there is a feeling of unsettlement about uh, all of this. Um, first of all, where do you think we are relative to terrorism 
and ISIS. And uh, what do you think we need to do? Well, ironically, one of the reasons that we are more concerned about attacks here in America and across Europe and other places is because we are doing better at containing ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Uh, We have actually, uh, the president was lambasted for saying that they've contained ISIL. He didn't mean contained writ large. He was, in context, he was saying within those two areas, we have in fact gained Actually reduced the territory territory. that they they held. We have reduced ISIL territory. We have taken out uh, a huge, huge number of their leaders including leaders that uh, with with those successful hits, we've gotten a lot more intelligence. And without going into things that I can't go into, um, I think we are on a better track within the theater, so to speak, uh, to keep making gains um, by cutting off their resources, by doing other things. But when we do that, they've got to continue to be relevant, which means they need these external things going on. That's which what, is how Paris happened. Which is how Paris happened, bringing down the Russian airplane. Uh, so they're looking for weaknesses around the globe where they can do um, showy, barbaric uh, slaughtering of innocent human beings and uh, that is the reality of what we face right now. And that's really hard uh, to catch. I am. I will tell you, I am more worried about encryption right now than I am just about anything else mm-hmm. because our intelligence yeah, You should ex- explain that they've basically encry- they're encrypting their communications and it makes it harder to track right. what... And what our tech doing. companies are allowing now with uh, the latest generation of devices... Uh, that allows conversations that can never be recovered no matter how many warrants you get. Um, we're not talking about eavesdropping on innocent citizens. We're talking about law enforcement with a warrant. They can't get into these phones with a warrant. Now, if we can't get at what bad guys are saying with a warrant in this country, um, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, will we figure out a way to still be effective? I, I have a lot of faith in the intelligence community and our military and law enforcement. But that is really a problem for us right now due to the nature of this threat. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is a luxurious area to Monday morning quarterback. Syria is as complicated as it gets in terms of cross currents. I mean, we've got Iran on one side, one place, the other side, the other place. We've got Russia, one side, one place, the other side, someplace else. We have, you know, we've got the problem with incompetent political leadership. We've got the the Sunni-Shia problem. We've got the moderate, radical Sunni-Shia sects. Then we have the Kurds and then Turkey, all worried about the Kurds. It is really complicated. And if anybody thinks the answer is just us landing 100,000 troops on the ground in Syria, they weren't paying attention during Iraq. Yeah, the, your, your colleagues on the Republican side, of you know, you've watched the race. And so it's all, uh, it's sort of a race to be as um, strident in, the, in language as, as possible. And the president was criticized for the tone of his speech, that it wasn't um, edgy enough, it wasn't aggressive enough. Uh, in its language, um, what are the what's the what's the downside of uh, indulging uh, that? And isn't there sort of a but isn't there and on the other side? Isn't there sort of a lust on the or a desire on the part of the American people to to hear some kick ass language? Well, I think Iraq happened because America really wanted to punch somebody in the nose. You know, you don't come in here and do this to America and not feel the consequences. Now, it kind of got lost. the wrong person in the nose. We punched the wrong, the wrong person. The nose, yeah. but, we've, but you've seen that happen before, right? Mm-hmm. Where somebody wants to fight somebody and they fight the wrong person? Well, that's what happened with Iraq. America was in the mood to fight. And politically, the Bush administration used that to, um, to go after Saddam. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it turned out badly. And created a vacuum, and it frankly uh, is is not directly think, responsible, you, but you partially th- responsible. You for think what that's we see what's today. going on now with these guys? And 
you know, presidents always said he, what he doesn't want to do is make America a bigger target and, and give them a bigger propaganda edge. You buy that? I do. And I think that's one of the things that Americans have a hard time getting their arms around. They don't realize that the success of ISIS in somewhat depends on to the extent that we demonize the entire Muslim world. Um, if we demonize the entire Muslim world, that is, you know, blue light special for ISIS. That is a good day for ISIS because ISIS is going to be more successful in radicalizing young people all over the globe if the West is turns into a block of anti-Muslim countries. So we've got to, that's what I think the president was trying to do last night. There's a difference between being anti-terrorist and anti-Muslim. It's but not the same. You heard your colleague, Senator Rubio, describe this as a clash of civilizations. Um, does that go on the other side of the equation? Is that, does that concern you? I, a lot of the rhetoric in the Republican primary concerns me. Um, they are all trying to be the anti-Obama. I mean, I, they forget that you know we've come, done a remarkable job of recovering our economy after an incredible problem in this nation in terms of financial freefall. They forget that this is the president that got Osama bin Laden. They've forgotten that... He has shown a resoluteness about using military when and following the military's advice as to when it is appropriate. They are just want to be anti, anti, anti Obama. And the further they can be from Obama, the more direct opposite they can be from Obama. They believe that's their ticket well, to win the may, Republican primary. Right in the Republican, and side. it may win the Republican primary for one of those candidates. You served with you served with Rubio. You served with Ted Cruz. What's your assessment of them? Well, I, it's not. You know, I hate to speak ill of my colleagues. I think Marco is smart. I think he is capable. I watched him uh, find that sweet spot of compromise in the immigration reform, but then he broke down like a cheap shotgun the minute the right started chewing on his rear end. He like what me immigration reform? What? I, no, no, that wasn't me. And that was really disappointing to me. Um, that's not what presidents are made of. Um, presidents are made of, 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 you know, yes, you've got to be sensitive to where the country is, but you also have to lead. You have to lead. Uh, you can't be led. Um, you've got to lead. And I think, uh, so, but Ted Cruz? Seems to be a unifying figure in Washington. Everybody seems to dislike him, Republican and Democrat. Yeah, he's very calculating. Um, I'm trying to think of positive smart. things. He's smart and calculating. Um, I will say, and I've said this publicly, I think he's running tactically. He's running maybe the most clever of the Republican campaigns right now. There's no now. question. It's not going to surprise me if Ted Cruz gets the nomination at all. Uh, his campaign manager is from Missouri. Um, I have felt this man in my life from time to time when I've run for office in Missouri this is a the manager. Take, the manager. Mm-hmm. He's a take no prisoners kind of guy. He just, you know, he has a very much a lust to win uh, at all costs, at any cost. And I think um, it worries me a little bit because you don't have to be popular with other senators, but you need to be respected by other senators if you have what it takes to be president of the United States. I mean, Barack Obama wasn't popular with all the senators, but he was respected, and Marco is respected. I don't think Ted has the respect of his fellow senators. And but in a sense, that's been a bad—that's an emblem of honor for him with the base of the Republican Party. Oh no, and I think part of it has been a calculation. I think he wants to be seen as—it's—he—he he needs to be an outsider this year. So the way to be an outsider is to be a, a jerk to everybody in Washington. You you are a strong supporter of Hillary Clinton, but you were a strong supporter of Barack Obama in 2008. You kind of ran afoul of the Clintons uh, in er, before that. You As be- Axe knows, when I'm in, I'm all in. Yes. I don't go halfway. No, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, what, what do you see as her strengths? And what concerns you about her? Obviously, you made a choice in 2008, and you can give me the political answer and say, I just thought Barack Obama, they were both wonderful, and he was the most wonderful of all. But they each have strengths and weaknesses. They do. What, what, are, what are her strengths and weaknesses? 
Uh, her strength is um, she she really, I think, now has such a resilience. Um, I think she has uh, such a center of stability about who she is and what she knows and her capability. Um, I, I see her now as uh, a much stronger candidate in many ways than she was in 2008. I think the experience she had going toe-to-toe, face-to-face with every major leader in the world has um, given her a depth in terms of her capability that far exceeds anyone in the field. And uh, her stability. Uh, She just doesn't get... I I don't see her getting pushed off of her center. Um, She still is who she is. She's not comfortable opening up. She still has some defensive crouches because she's gone through a life of... Uh, being attacked and expects to be attacked. And sometimes it's hard to be on offense when you think you have to be on defense. And I think that has contributed to, at times, her inability, um, you know, the, the the knock on her is that she's not authentic. Well, I think she is being authentic. I think it's who she is. She's just Authentically not, defensive? She's just, and, and but it comes from a real place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anybody who'd been through what she's been through probably would be slightly defensive. Um, she's been through more probably in, in terms of if you look at the trajectory of her adult life, um, it's, it's remarkable, the slings and arrows that she's endured on a personal level, on a professional level, and on a political level. So um, I really do think that she is by far the most qualified. And the other thing I like is that she is keeping her head down, even though nobody's paying attention to her substantive policy stuff. She's doing it. She's doing her homework. She's got substantive policy things that matter. And I think she has a more optimistic view right now of the future than the Republican candidates. And I think the people who decide presidential elections, they want someone who is going to be positive. Uh, It's hard to find anything positive on the Republican side right now. Do you, um, were you you, uh, concerned when she... Or what was your feeling when she switched uh, positions or apparently switched positions on the trade, on the TPP? Well, I I mean, the TPP is not done. Um, And as time goes on and the details come out, it will become more and more difficult to get this thing across the finish line. And I think she probably was looking forward to what was going to begin to happen, knowing that the support for it was not robust and obviously very divided so in her think party. She, politically, do you think she made the right decision? Time will tell. But I, I'm not comfortable being hypercritical of her. I mean, there were an awful lot of people that I respect that took her view. Um, I think in the long run, we need the customers that the TPP represents. Um, so... I mean, maybe this is going to be the second president in a row that I disagree with with some regularity, but still remain friends. (laughs) Let me ask you about another set of opponents, and I want you to talk about what the prospects are for 2016, the Chicago Cubs and your St. Louis Cardinals. Okay, first of all, I'm a little nervous how young the Cubs are. They are pretty damn young. Yes. Um, But I'll tell you the mistake the Cubs made. What's that? They thought. I thought beating, I thought beating the Cardinals was, was the World the... Series. They thought beating the Cardinals yeah. was the World Series. It has been that's so hard. That's part of hard. being young, isn't it? Yeah, that's part of being young. I mean, if they thought if we can beat the Cardinals, because the Cardinals were a machine this year. I mean, obviously the best record in baseball, yeah. uh, 100 wins. Um, Pretty remarkable because they had injuries. Huge and, injuries. Yeah. I mean, like team thwarting injuries that they just overcame. So I think when the Cubs beat the Cardinals, they it was a little bit like when I beat the governor in the Democratic primary yes, in 2004. Yes, we didn't even get to that. Yes. I know. I thought, okay, I did the hard thing. I beat a governor of my own party, right? Well, I think the Cubs did the same thing. And you lost I, the general. I lost the general, yes. and, and they lost. And uh, But I will say this. I will never suffer from any East Coast snob 
about baseball again, because when you look at the World Series over the last several years, seems to me a couple of small markets with middle-of-the-road payrolls have been the champions um, more than once. And so I was really happy for Kansas City. Um, everybody, in, I, you know, I get in trouble in Kansas City because they know I'm a Cardinal fan. Right. But I'm always a Kansas City fan. How did that happen anyway? Well, I was... You're from that part of the state. Well, I was yeah. actually raised in rural Missouri, and mm-hmm. when you were growing up in the 50s, in 60s in rural Missouri, there was only one baseball team, and that was Harry Carey and the Cardinals on KMOX, and right. you listened to it on the transistor radio in the backyard with my with my uh, great uncle, who was like my grandfather, and was really raised on Cardinal baseball. So um, I came by that um, naturally, but it was it was fun to see Kansas City get it done. I was there for the fifth game in New York, and um, got cussed at. Uh, in New York for being... Uh, really? That never happened. The bee from that, Kansas City. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, somebody was yelling at me, Shamari, I can't believe you brought that bee from Kansas City. <laughs> you know, and it was like, I love this. We're winning in New York. It was terrific. It was terrific. So you brought up uh, the fact that you ran for governor once. There are a whole bunch of folks who think that you should maybe run for governor again or would run for governor again. Is that something that you'd consider doing? You know, I thought about it this time. It's open. And I really, my family, we sat down and really talked about it. And, you know, I I am so blessed and so lucky to have the job I have. I really do believe that. I mean, I'm so corny. I When I drive into work in the morning early and there's this pink glow on the Capitol, I mean, I still get goosebumps. I still can't believe I'm here. That wasn't John Boehner? No, it oh, wasn't John yeah. Boehner. It was, it was, it, I really do. I, I get, ex- I, and the policy work here is amazing. Every day is a different, interesting challenge. Jefferson City, um, the legislature is so Neanderthal at this point. It would have been a daily mm. battle. So, you know, I, I just think I can get more done on the things I care about here uh, over the next few years than, than I could in Jeff City. So I said no, and I, I think that moment has passed. So I'm already looking around trying to find another woman who can be the first woman governor of Missouri. Well, Claire McCaskill, one, uh, my, my great friend, uh, gutsy and authentic and really, to me, the essence of what politics should be. So I'm, I'm really glad to We have miss you. you up here, Axe. You need to come around more often. Yeah, we but miss I'm, you. I, it's great out there in the real I world. Know, you know? I know it's true. It's I know it's true. And, and I know your family. You University of Chicago, you were there. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I'm having a great time. You want to be inspired, spend time with a bunch of kids. Yeah, and, isn't that the truth? Yeah. yeah. Good Thank for you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.